Did you hit record? No. Okay. Oh, no, you we're did. rolling. You did. Okay. We are rolling. All right. <clears throat> and we're back. This week on the show, we've got a reading series for you. David Brooks and Ross Douthat put their fingers on the pulse of the nation once again this month and have attempted to diagnose what ails us. Spoiler alert, uh, it's not the people who've been at the center of American politics for the last five decades. It's, of course, the fault of a left that can't elect Bernie Sanders and the right-wingers who post on Parler. And certainly not the fault of columnists who've helped form every mainstream opinion since the Clinton administration. So on September 1st of this year, David Brooks um, wrote an opinion column for the New York Times titled, If an Alternative Candidate is Needed in 2024, These Folks Will Be Ready. Mr. Brooks starts, out, starts us out um, with a little thought experiment here, and he says, quote, What happens if the 2024 election is between Donald Trump and somebody like Bernie Sanders? What happens if the Republicans nominate someone who is morally unacceptable to millions of Americans, while the Democrats nominate someone who is ideologically unacceptable? Where do the millions of voters in the middle go? Does Trump end up winning as voters refuse to go that far left? Ah, uh, yes, the essential question of American politics. Who will stand up for the ideologically feckless? Who will come to the aid of those who cannot decide between our two glorious political cartels. And uh, Brooks continues, quote, the group No Labels has been working quietly over the past 10 months to give Americans a third viable option. The group calls its, its work an insurance policy. If one of the parties nominates a candidate acceptable to the center of the electorate, then the presidential operation will shut down. But if both parties go to the extremes, then there will be a unity ticket appealing to both Democrats and Republicans to combat this period of polarized dysfunction. And they've raised over half of the 70 million that they say they need to complete that project. They're working to get on the ballot and creating a database of those supporting this unity ticket. What immediately comes to mind for me hearing this, and I, I don't know if there's like a specific connection to this, but it makes me think of the forward party, you know, created by none other than Andrew Yang. Mm -hmm. So, well, and as we work down through this, right, we'll see that the, the key difference between this and other third party projects is that idea of an insurance policy, mm -hmm. you know, that, that this is something that will only be triggered if the candidates nominated by both of the major parties are deemed unacceptable by the people who run this yeah. $70 million project. A third effort seeks to set a policy agenda for the party. Here it comes. So Brooks writes, the group has come up with a series of both and positions on major issues, comprehensive immigration reform with stronger borders, and a path to citizenship for DACA immigrants. American energy self-sufficiency while transitioning to cleaner sources, no guns for anyone under 21, and universal background checks 
moderate abortion policies with abortion legal until about 15 weeks. And there it is. A party that's not the Democrats, but is also just the Democrats. (laughs) I love this. Moderates want to pretend that there isn't a party for the moderates because they don't have a framework for diagnosing or even naming the rightward shift in American politics. We've seen this time and again. Any third party does their surveys and focus groups for what's politically viable and comes back with Andrew Yang and Carpen credits every single time. But hold on a second. This isn't a regular party. They're calling it an insurance policy. Yeah. You know, it's the the Web3 startup version of a third party and that it's raising a ton of money to produce something that already exists more efficiently. But that's because the real point isn't to create anything useful, but to bilk money from donors and profit from collecting everybody's data. So Brooks writes, the big question is, is this a good idea? To think this through, I've imagined a 2024 campaign in which the Republicans nominate Trump, Biden retires, and the Democrats nominate someone progressive, and the No Labels group nominates retired Admiral William McRaven. I'm just grabbing his name off the top of my head as the sort of person who might be ideal for the no labels ticket. Fucking who? He's the guy who commanded SOCOM and JSOC after the war on terror turned into an interminable shit show. The one Biden you know, passed over for secretary of defense. Ah, yes. The, the former University of Texas system chancellor. Right. And someone with zero name recognition outside of nerds who watch too much cable TV the perfect person to split this vote for a second Donald Trump term. (laughs) So I just want to say every time I've seen Andrew Yang appear on national television over the past several months at this point, and he's been asked numerous times about his policy positions on things like reproductive rights and climate policy that doesn't have to do with just giving out, you know, carbon credits and stuff like that. He has not been able to discern at any point any kind of detailed proposal for any of these things. I mean, he's on several occasions just used the catchy, you know, we're just going to move forward because this is the forward party as his answer. And his supporters eat that up because he's not Joe Biden. He's not Donald Trump. So therefore, what he's saying must be right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the most of the momentum behind third party or even insurance policies like this is just that there's a lot of people who don't want to vote for Donald Trump, um, but who are basically conservatives who support the Republican platform. It's just Donald Trump makes them feel yucky. And then there are moderates who are basically Democrats, but just don't like identifying with the party. Right. And the hope is that those two groups of people are large enough to sustain, you know, uh, a third party candidate, uh, although, you know, it's, it's conspicuous that, you know, running programs like this, you know, a third party or an insurance policy are incredibly profitable to the people who are conducting them, right? Yeah. You could justify working for and conducting one of these projects, even if you didn't believe at all in the right. viability right. of a candidacy, because, you know, uh, on the way you get to raise $70 million and pull down a six figure salary working for one of these you know, efforts. The really wonderful thing about this upcoming election is that it's very likely going to be a showdown between two 80 year old men um, 
that are both very visibly showing signs of like severe cognitive decline and web three as the other candidate. Right. So there it is. If that couldn't be more uh, indicative of collapse and right. overall societal decline, right. you know, that's, that's the election we're about to be dealing with here in, in a little over, you know, two years from now. So it's great. A, a web three startup versus Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So the polling suggests it's easier to find Republicans who want to pull away from Trump than Democrats who want to pull away from Biden. Sure. The conservative nerds whose ideal candidate is just Ron DeSantis uh, are not going to get psyched up to vote for William McRaven. Brooks continues, the first danger is that the no labels candidate would draw more support away from the Democrats and end up reelecting Trump. The second danger is that the no-labels candidate fails to generate any excitement at all. Millions of Americans claim to dislike the two major parties, but come election time, they hold their noses and support one in order to defeat the other party they hate more. Everybody get your credit cards out. It's time to fund no-labels. The label of no-labels. It's like the know-nothings. I mean, it's really the no-labels party... It really is firmly within our ideological tradition of third parties. So moving on to our second opinion piece on the New York Times. Uh, This is titled, Does Biden Really Believe We Are in a Crisis of Democracy? Written on September 3rd by Ross Dalfat. So it's primarily based on his reaction to a speech that Biden gave earlier this month. The one where he was cast as the prime minister from V for Vendetta? Precisely. And Dalfat writes, quote, strip away the weird semi-fascist optics, the creepy crimson lighting, and the Marines standing sentinel. In the speech Joe Biden gave on Thursday night outside Philadelphia's Independence Hall could have been given by other prominent Democrats throughout the Trump era. And admittedly, that's a based take right there. Biden's speech was just a redux of like that clip from the Jan 6 hearings when Republicans pasted together uh, like all the moments when Democrats would assemble the press in front of them and set their hair on fire during the Trump administration. We have some video to play that highlights some of what I'm talking about. I, I, I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country, and maybe there will be. There needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. You've got to be ready to throw a punch. You have to be ready to throw a punch. Donald Trump, I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. That I thought he should have punched him in the face. I feel like punching him. I'd like to take him behind the gym if I were in high school. If we were in high school, I'd take him behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. No, I wish we were in high school, I could take him behind the gym. I will go and take Trump out tonight. Take them out now. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. Please. Get up in the face of some Congress people. People will do what they do. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. We're going to go in there, we're going to... This is just a warning to you Trumpers. Be careful. Walk lightly 
And for those of you who are soldiers, make them pay. If you had to be stuck in an elevator with either President Trump, Mike Pence, or Jeff Sessions, who would it be? Does one of us have to come out alive? <laughs> Dalfet continues. The song is always the same. On the one hand, dire warnings about Trumpian authoritarianism and the need for all patriotic Republicans and independents to join the defense of American democracy. On the other, a strictly partisan agenda that offers few grounds for ideological truce, few real concessions to beliefs outside the liberal tent. And as we established when we were reading the Brooks piece, strictly partisan means here inescapably popular on any survey or in any focus group. And Dalfet continues, the speech's warning against eroding democratic norms was delivered a week after Biden's semi-Caesarist announcement of a $500 billion student loan forgiveness plan without consulting Congress. And it was immediately succeeded by the news that Democrats would be pouring millions into advertising into New Hampshire's Republican Senate primary in the hopes of making sure that the Trumpiest candidate wins. The latest example of liberal strategists deliberately elevating figures their party and president officially consider an existential threat to the republic. This is a good point, too. The the Dems are actively promoting right-wing candidates and doing the barest minimum of student debt relief. You know, truly the behavior of dyed-in-the-wool radicals. And Dalpet continues, it's still important to judge the leaders of the Democratic Party by their behavior. You may believe that American democracy is threatened, as at no other point since the Civil War, but dear reader, they do not. They are running a political operation in which the threat to democracy is leveraged, used to keep swing voters on side without having to make difficult concessions to the center or the right. I do think it's worth pointing out that the same people who have decided Trumpian candidates are good for Democrats are the same people who saw Hillary as inevitable in 2016. The Republicans are a minority party until the Democrats' hubris quietly funds the next Huey Long. And doubt that once more continues, if January 6th and its aftermath made it easier to imagine a Trumpian GOP precipitating a constitutional crisis, they did not make it more imaginable that it could consolidate power thereafter, in the style of Turkey's Recep Erdogan or Venezuela's Hugo Chavez or any other example which in turn makes it relatively safe for the Democratic Party to continue using crisis of democracy rhetoric instrumentally and even tacitly boost Trump within the GOP instead of making the moves toward conciliation and cultural truce that a real crisis would require. You know, the reason that this contradiction exists is because no one really believes in the capacity of these institutions to deliver on any of these policies, even the ones that are broadly popular. The ones that the Democrats have put in the platform and the ones that every third party can't get away from reiterating in their surveys of public opinion. The only thing the Democrats' suburban base really need from the state is the humiliation of their political opponents and the sense that the fascist beast is truly banging at the door, which is lucky too because that's apparently all they're going to get. 